Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is, was Abraham Lincoln the primary reason the Union won the American Civil War? Spoiler alert, yes, he was. A famous historian from the mid-20th century named David Potter once wrote that it seems hardly unrealistic to suppose that if the Union and the Confederacy had changed presidents with one another, the Confederacy might have won its independence. I'm not going to go as far as David Potter, but I will explain how Lincoln was the number one reason that the Union won the American Civil War. Let's be clear at the outset. I am not saying that Lincoln is the only reason why the North won the Civil War. There are many reasons why the Union won, including, but not limited to, the brilliance of Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman as generals, the much larger population in the free states, and the industrial capacity of the free states. There are also many reasons why the South lost the Civil War, but I'm not focusing on those issues. My point in today's episode is that if you were ranking the reasons why the Union won the Civil War, the number one reason was Abraham Lincoln. First, we have to dispel some myths. Defenders of the lost cause legend basically state that the Union was destined to win because it had superior numbers and superior materials of war. So, the side with the superior numbers and materials always wins, right? Ask the British how that worked out in the American Revolution. Ask the U.S. or French how that worked out in Vietnam. In the 1860s, the Confederacy had much greater advantages than the American colonies in the 1700s or the Vietnamese in the 20th century. For one thing, the CSA, the Confederate States of America, was huge geographically. The Union and the federal government had to conquer a much larger area than the British had to try to conquer in the American Revolution or the U.S. or French had to conquer in Vietnam. And Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, had the much easier position. All the Confederacy had to do was not lose. The South could win their independence by simply not losing. All the Confederacy needed was a stalemate, like playing for a tie in sports. But the federal forces could only win the war by actually conquering the South. This was something that George Washington figured out in the American Revolution. He just had to avoid losing and keep his army intact until the British finally had enough and just wanted to give up. The same thing for Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. Another reason why the position of the Union and Lincoln was so difficult was because of the military technology at the time. It was much easier being on the defensive than being the attacking army in the Civil War. The weapons which were being used, most notably rifled muskets and cannons, made the defensive position much easier. This advantage for the army on the defensive side only grew through World War I and the horrors of trench warfare. Tanks and airplanes in World War II changed the advantage back to the attacking side. I went through a lot of these issues in detail in my episode comparing Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. 
The reason I'm giving you a brief outline here is to dispel the myth that Lincoln had the easier task. When the war started in 1861, any reasonable person would have thought that Jefferson Davis would have been a much better wartime president for the Confederacy than Abraham Lincoln would be for the Union. Lincoln had essentially no military experience. He served in the Illinois State Militia during the Black Hawk War, but saw no military action at all. Conversely, Jefferson Davis had gone to West Point. He was in the Army for several years and even served as an officer with distinction in the Mexican-American War. He also served as the Secretary of War during the Franklin Pierce administration. But Lincoln educated himself. During the war, he read many books about military strategy, tactics, and logistics. He gave himself a military education similar to the way he taught himself the law, math, and almost everything else. In his entire life, he had a total of about one year of formal education. Everything else was self-taught. Talk about a self-made man. Lincoln's ability to learn how to become an effective commander-in-chief of the military is one of the reasons the Union won the Civil War. In this episode, I first want to go into some generalities about Lincoln as a wartime president, and later on I'll go into some specific instances. First up was the policy for the war. Policy meant what were the goals? What was the Union fighting for? Lincoln made it clear from the outset that the ultimate goal was to preserve the United States based upon democracy. We cannot allow a minority to destroy the country through secession. Restoring the Union had to be primary. What about slavery? I'll discuss slavery in detail later on, but Lincoln was right that the primary goal had to be to save the Union. Think about it. If the Union lost the war, that would mean that the Confederacy was now a separate nation with slavery intact for who knows how much longer. And if the CSA was a separate nation, the Confederacy would be free to expand into other regions, such as the American Southwest, parts of Northern Mexico, or Cuba and other Caribbean islands. This is why if anybody was truly interested in ending the scourge and disgrace of slavery, first and foremost, the Union had to win the war. This is why Lincoln was right in his priorities. Once the policy was determined, how was Lincoln going to achieve that policy of reuniting the country? A lofty goal is one thing, Achieving it is something else. Lincoln was able to mobilize the states that were still in the Union. First and foremost, he had to convince men to fight. Jefferson Davis had a much easier time convincing Southerners to fight. It's a lot easier to convince people to defend their homes from invading armies. And Southerners were told that they were defending their way of life. Of course, that way of life was a society based upon human slavery. But Lincoln was faced with trying to get people to risk their lives for more of a theoretical idea. He had to inspire men that it was possibly worth dying to save democracy. As Lincoln so eloquently put it in his address to Congress in December 1862, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. 
Lincoln also had to keep up public support for the war. I mentioned earlier how the British lost the American Revolution and the United States lost in Vietnam because both of those powerful countries with much greater military resources lost the will to fight. In a democracy, you cannot win a war when the public is against it. As the American Civil War dragged on for four years and became the bloodiest conflict in American history before or since, there were a lot of people who were willing to accept peace at just about any price because they just could not stomach more killing. Lincoln was able to keep the populace backing the war. Lincoln was also able to build an army and navy capable of winning. Before the war started, the U.S. Army only had approximately 16,000 men. A year later, in April 1862, the Union Army had over 600,000 men. The total number of men who served in the U.S. Army in the Civil War was over 2.1 million. Not only was Lincoln able to convince all of these men to possibly lose their lives, he also had to provide logistics. The Army and Navy needed uniforms, food, guns, ships, and countless other items. The U.S. had never produced military necessities on such a large scale. And just as important as the production and distribution of these items, how were they going to pay for it? Lincoln made sure that the federal government could raise enough money to pay for the war. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the financial cost of the Civil War was an estimated $5.2 billion. And that was in 1865 dollars. Another general area where Lincoln excelled was foreign relations. The main thing he needed to do was to keep other countries out of the American Civil War. Particularly, this meant Britain and France. Both countries relied on southern cotton for their textile industries. But more importantly, Britain and France were hoping that the United States would break apart. The British and French could see the exponential growth of the U.S. It was obvious that America would, in the not-too-distant future, surpass all of the European countries in industrial might. However, if the United States split into two, or possibly more, countries, then the European nations would not have to compete with one American colossus. Another general topic where Lincoln excelled was military strategy. When Ulysses S. Grant was made general-in-chief of all of the Union armies in March 1864, Lincoln finally had somebody who understood the overall military situation like he did. Up until that time, Lincoln tried to make his commanding officers understand three things. Number one, the federal forces needed to concentrate in time. That term means having all of your forces attacking at the same time. When Union forces would attack in piecemeal fashion throughout the Confederacy, it allowed the Southerners to move soldiers from place to place to deal with that particular threat. The South was able to do this because of interior lines. But if the Confederacy was being attacked in multiple places at the same exact time, then they could not move armies from a quiet sector to a threatened sector. Lincoln understood this, but was unable to make his commanding officers understand this concept until he finally elevated Grant to be in charge of all federal armies. Number two, another concept that Lincoln understood from the beginning, but his generals did not until Grant came along, was that the key was destroying the Confederate armies, especially in the Eastern theater, 
meaning Virginia, federal generals thought the goal was to capture southern cities, primarily Richmond, since it was the capital of the Confederacy. Lincoln understood that occupying territory was helpful, but would not win the war. He understood that the war would not be over until the CSA could no longer field armies. Number three. Another concept that Lincoln understood from the beginning of the war was that this was a war of attrition. The North had a vastly superior population. Simply put, the Union could afford to lose a lot more men than the Confederacy could. Lincoln searched until he found the general who could face this terrible math. He kept going through generals until he found Grant who understood the concept of a war of attrition. Now let's get into some specific examples of Lincoln's governing style, his fantastic temperament, and his political genius. Confederate President Jefferson Davis took everything personally. He defended himself against every perceived slight. The Union president was able to overlook insults, insubordination, and people taking credit as long as he could achieve his ultimate goal of reuniting the country. He did this all the time, but I'll give you three famous examples. Number one, when Lincoln needed to replace the corrupt Simon Cameron as Secretary of War in 1862, Lincoln selected Edwin Stanton to be the new Secretary of War. This was remarkable because before the war, when there were attorneys, they had worked as joint counsel on a case where Stanton made it clear he did not think much of Lincoln, who he considered a country bumpkin. He famously made fun of Lincoln's appearance and called him the original gorilla. But Lincoln could overlook these past personal attacks and put Stanton in charge of the War Department because Lincoln knew Stanton was easily the best person for the job. Example number two, Salmon Portland Chase was the Secretary of the Treasury for most of the Civil War. He's largely forgotten today, except that you see his name on almost a daily basis. Chase Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase are named after him. And here's some interesting trivia. Beginning in 1918, the United States issued a $10,000 bill, and Salmon Chase's picture was on that bill. In July 1969, the Department of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve System announced that all currency notes in denominations above 100 would be immediately discontinued. Anyway, getting back to the topic at hand, the whole time that Salmon Chase served in Lincoln's cabinet, he was always scheming to get the Republican nomination for president in 1864. He was trying to replace Lincoln as their party's nominee in the next presidential election. This was not a secret. Everybody knew he was doing this, including Lincoln. Yet Lincoln kept him as Secretary of the Treasury for over three years because Chase was able to raise the tremendous amounts of money to finance the Civil War. Example number three, the best example of Lincoln being able to overlook people who disrespected him was General George McClellan. When McClellan was the commanding officer of the primary Union Army in the Eastern Theater, the Army of the Potomac, he refused to tell Lincoln of his plans. Lincoln was commander-in-chief of the military. He regularly insulted Lincoln to everybody who would listen. And here's the best example. We know about this incident because it was in the diary of John Hay, one of Lincoln's private secretaries. 
Lincoln and Hay, along with Secretary of State William Seward, went to McClellan's house in Washington, D.C. to talk to him about his upcoming military plans. McClellan wasn't home, so the three men decided to wait. When McClellan eventually returned home, he walked right by Lincoln and the other two men and went upstairs to bed. McClellan then sent his servant down to tell the three visitors that the general had gone to bed and would not see them that night. Most people, including me, would have immediately fired McClellan for insubordination, but not Lincoln. When asked about his insufferable general, Lincoln supposedly said, I will hold McClellan's horse if he will bring us success. I know that that is the way to achieve your goals, to overlook personal insults, but I don't think I would have been able to do it. Lincoln had tremendous patience with the arrogant and inept George McClellan. After the failure to capture Richmond in what was called the Peninsula Campaign in the spring of 1862, another general named John Pope was placed in command of the primary army in the Eastern Theater. Unfortunately for the Union, Pope and his army were soundly defeated at the Second Battle of Bull Run. Riding high, Confederate General Robert E. Lee took his army into Maryland. This greatly threatened the capital of Washington, D.C. As much as Lincoln personally disliked McClellan, he restored McClellan to overall command in the East because he knew he was the one person that could rally the Union troops who were so distraught after the beatings on the Virginia Peninsula and at the Second Battle of Bull Run. Although he was a terrible general, for some reason, the troops loved him. So Lincoln reinstated McClellan for the Maryland campaign. And I know you're dying to find out how this turned out. McClellan's army faced Lee's army at the Battle of Antietam, which is the bloodiest single day in American history, September 17, 1862. The battle was essentially a draw, but it did stop Lee's advance into Maryland and Lee retreated back into Virginia. As a side note, here's an example of how bad of a general McClellan was. In one of the most remarkable events of the Civil War, a few days before the battle at Antietam, a Union soldier found in a field a paper wrapped around three cigars. That paper was a copy of Robert E. Lee's orders to his subordinate officers. This meant that McClellan knew exactly what Lee was doing with his troops, and yet McClellan still could not crush Lee. If that had been Grant or Sherman, the war would have been over in September 1862. Although Lincoln pressed McClellan to follow up the Battle of Antietam and to destroy Lee's army, McClellan did not do so, and Lincoln finally relieved McClellan for good. The point of all this is how many of us could have overlooked such slights from an underling like McClellan and seemingly reward him because it was best for the ultimate goals? We all like to think that we would do this, but how many of us really could? Another quality that Lincoln had, but Jefferson Davis certainly lacked, was the ability to delegate authority. Davis famously micromanaged most of the war on behalf of the Confederacy. Once Lincoln discovered that somebody was competent and could be trusted to fulfill their duties, he did not interfere with the day-to-day -day operations. One example is Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon Chase. Once Lincoln understood that Chase could raise enough money to finance the war, Lincoln did not get involved in the Treasury Department. And once Grant was made general-in-chief of all of the Union armies in March 1864, 
Lincoln gave Grant a completely free hand. And since he trusted Grant's judgment, Lincoln allowed other officers free reign as long as the military campaign was approved by Grant. The most famous example would be when Lincoln was advised that William Tecumseh Sherman planned to march his army from Atlanta to the sea. Lincoln was very worried and thought it was a bad idea. But by this point, he had learned that he could trust Grant and Sherman, and he allowed Sherman to make his march. That reminds me of one of the greatest quotes from the Civil War. Sherman sent the telegram to Grant, dated October 9, 1864, explaining his proposal to march from Atlanta to the Atlantic Ocean, living off the land and cutting off his supply lines. Here's the memorable quote from Sherman to Grant. I can make the march and make Georgia howl. In case you are not familiar with Sherman's march, it was extremely successful and he did indeed make Georgia howl. An example that doesn't have to do with the war, but does have to do with his ability to delegate is the fact that most correspondence from the White House was written by Lincoln's two personal secretaries, John Nicolay and John Hay. Once Lincoln read enough of the letters and documents prepared by the two secretaries that he knew he could trust them, he allowed them to write most of his correspondence. As a side note, there's a famous letter from President Lincoln expressing condolences to Mrs. Lydia Bixby of Massachusetts. It was originally believed that she had lost five sons fighting in the Union Army. It was later discovered that only two sons died in battle. The other three had not. One had deserted the army. Another one either deserted the army or died as a POW, we just don't know. And the last one was honorably discharged from the Union Army. If you ever saw the movie Saving Private Ryan, General Marshall reads this letter at the beginning of the movie. It's a fabulous scene, and it's the pretext for sending the mission to find Private Ryan and send him home. Here is the text of that letter. Executive Mansion, Washington, November 21, 1864. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours, very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. That letter is often cited as one of the greatest letters written in the English language. However, a lot of historians believe that Lincoln did not write the letter. I concur. I believe that his personal secretary, John Hay, wrote the letter. He was only 26 years old at that time. If you're wondering how historians determine who actually wrote the letter, since we do not have an original copy to check the handwriting, it is examined using forensic linguistics. These examiners put into computers everything known to definitely be written by somebody, in this case, Abraham Lincoln and John Hay. Then they check and see if the known writings of that person used certain words or phrases. 
The examinations have shown that the letter was almost certainly written by John Hay. The words and phrases in the letter greatly resemble documents known to be drafted by John Hay, but do not match known writings of Abraham Lincoln. I know that this is really off topic about Lincoln's greatness as a war leader, but I find the whole issue of the Bixby letter just fascinating. And in case you're wondering, what happened to that 26-year-old private secretary? John Hay went on to have an incredible career in his own right, eventually rising to become the U.S. Ambassador to England, as well as Secretary of State under Presidents William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt. Much of what we know about Lincoln was because of the personal records and the enormous biography written about Lincoln by John Hay and his fellow private secretary, John Nicolay. One other thing about John Hay before I go back to Lincoln. I will bet when a lot of you were in high school, you learned that the Spanish-American War in 1898 was described as a splendid little war. It was called that because it had relatively few casualties, was over quickly, and was a resounding success for the United States. That phrase came from John Hay when he was Secretary of State. Let's get back to the reasons why the Union won the Civil War due to Lincoln. Lincoln was an excellent judge of talent. This was especially true when it came to his generals. He famously went through many commanding officers before he found the right ones. Some people see that as a sign that he could not evaluate military commanders. That's wrong. It's the opposite. When Lincoln was trying to find the right generals to command the Union armies, he did not have track records to review. It's true that some of these men had been officers in the Mexican-American War, but that was over 14 years in the past. The men who were commanding generals in the Civil War had been young minor officers at the time of the Mexican War. So all Lincoln could do was to place a man in charge of a particular army and see how he did. This led Lincoln to go through many generals in the Eastern Theater. Irvin McDowell, George McClellan, John Pope, Ambrose Burnside, Joseph Hooker, George Meade. But Lincoln also discovered the best general in the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant. And Lincoln stuck by Grant even when he had some setbacks, like the first day at Shiloh or the many months of trying to capture Vicksburg before he was finally successful. After that very bloody battle at Shiloh, a lot of people were urging Lincoln to relieve Grant of his command. Supposedly, Lincoln gave the famous response, I can't spare this man, he fights. Lincoln understood, before most people in the country did, that Grant was the best general they had. And as I mentioned earlier, he eventually put Grant in charge of all of the Union armies in March of 1864. My personal opinion is that one of the best chances that the South had of winning the Civil War was during the Trent Affair. Here's a quick recap of that situation. Throughout the Civil War, the leaders of the Confederacy tried to get recognition as an independent country. In particular, they wanted such recognition from Britain and France. The hope of the Southerners was that if the two European powers recognized the Confederacy as a sovereign nation, that they might sign an alliance with the CSA or, at a minimum, provide military assistance. 
Canada was still a British possession at the time. As a matter of fact, Canada did not become an independent country until two years after the Civil War ended on July 1, 1867. If federal forces had to fight not only the Confederate armies in the South, but also fight British and possibly French armies attacking from the North in Canada, along with dealing with the British and French navies, there is a decent likelihood that the South would have gained its independence. So that brings us to the Trent Affair. The Trent was a British mail ship. Two Confederate envoys named James Mason and John Slidell were aboard the Trent. They were going to London to try to secure recognition from the British and the French of the Confederacy as a sovereign nation. The diplomatic crisis arose on November 8, 1861, when a federal naval vessel, the USS San Jacinto, commanded by Captain John Wilkes, stopped the British ship Trent and removed the two southern envoys. The British government demanded the immediate release of Mason and Slidell. The British claimed that their neutrality had been violated by the U.S. Navy. Segments of both the British and American publics were screaming for war. Lincoln really hated the idea of appearing to back down to British demands. But Lincoln also understood that he had to swallow his pride and do what was best to achieve his long-term goal of reuniting the United States. Through his Secretary of State, William Seward, Lincoln ordered the release of the two Confederate prisoners. If somebody other than Lincoln had been president, there's a good chance that their ego would not have allowed them to back down to pressure from Britain. Would a war have ensued if the U.S. refused to release the two Confederates to the British? Possibly. An even better example of Lincoln's political acumen was at the start of the Civil War. Remember when I said that one of the great achievements by Lincoln was getting millions of men to fight for the Union? In the fall of 1941, most Americans did not want the U.S. to join World War II. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 completely changed the U.S. mindset. In the spring of 1861, Lincoln understood that people throughout the North would be much more fired up and willing to put their lives on the line if the South attacked first. How could he get the Southerners to do that? If Southern leaders were sensible, they would just remain on the defensive. Lincoln brilliantly set a trap which the Confederates walked right into. The flashpoint was Charleston, South Carolina. There were three federal forts which guarded Charleston Harbor. The federal troops were commanded by Major Robert Anderson. Fun fact, the second in command was Captain Abner Doubleday. He is often cited as the inventor of baseball. Sorry, but it's not true. Nobody who has researched the matter believes that Abner Doubleday invented baseball. This nonsense started in 1908 when the National League looked into the history of the sport and somehow concluded that Abner Doubleday had invented baseball in 1839 in Cooperstown, New York. That's why the Baseball Hall of Fame is located in Cooperstown. But Doubleday did not invent baseball. It's generally agreed that no single person invented baseball. Anyway, back to Charleston Harbor. Major Anderson moved the soldiers from two of the federal forts to Fort Sumter because it was the most defensible position. That fort was located on an island in the middle of the harbor. The Southerners demanded the surrender of Fort Sumter 
but Major Anderson refused. The Confederates could have simply waited until the soldiers in the fort ran out of food and would have to surrender. Lincoln was receiving conflicting advice. Some people recommended giving up the fort. Others advocated sending in a naval force with additional soldiers and ammunition to help Fort Sumter. Lincoln came up with a different plan. He ordered unarmed ships be sent to Charleston Harbor with provisions to feed the federal garrison in the fort. He informed the government officials in South Carolina that the federal government was merely sending provisions but no military supplies or soldiers. This worked. The Confederate military in Charleston was commanded by General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard. That is easily the greatest name in the Civil War. Anyway, Beauregard and the Confederate President Jefferson Davis did not want Major Anderson and his men to receive food supplies which would allow them to remain in Fort Sumter. At 4.30 in the morning on April 12, 1861, the Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter. Even though they fired cannons from shore batteries into the fort for almost 36 hours, there were no deaths inside the fort. The Southerners had been fools to fire the first shots. In the same way Pearl Harbor would unify the nation 80 years later, the attack on Fort Sumter raised the martial spirit throughout the free states. This was political genius. Lincoln and the Union would not be the aggressors. A fighting spirit spread throughout the Union states, and he was able to keep public support throughout the war. Another time that the South might have won the war was at the outset. If the Confederacy could have convinced the border states to secede from the Union, that could have tipped the balance. What do I mean by border states? In the spring of 1861, there were 15 slave states some in the Union, some out. There were 19 free states, including Kansas, which had just joined the Union as a free state on January 29, 1861. 11 of the 15 slave states seceded and formed the Confederacy. But there were four slave states that did not secede, and they bordered the free states. These were Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. That last one always shocks people. Who remembers that Delaware was a slave state? Anyway, it was clear that Delaware was not going to secede. But what about the other three border states? How did Lincoln keep them in the Union? First, let's deal with Missouri. Missouri never seceded, but had a very split loyalty throughout the war. Missouri experienced a lot of guerrilla fighting and the cliche of brother versus brother was often accurate. The biggest problem Lincoln faced in Missouri was John C. Fremont. He had been a senator from California and was the first Republican nominee for president in 1856. Since he was prominent in Lincoln's own party, Lincoln had to deal with this guy somewhat carefully so as not to have a split in the Republican Party. So Lincoln appointed Fremont as a major general in the Federal Army. Fremont was sent to Missouri to clear out the Confederate forces there. On August 30, 1861, Fremont issued a proclamation placing the state of Missouri under martial law. What really concerned Lincoln was that Fremont's order also set free the slaves of anybody who was aiding the rebellion. Lincoln asked Fremont to rescind this statement of emancipation. Fremont refused. Finally, on October 24, 1861, Lincoln relieved Fremont of his command and rescinded Fremont's order. 
I'll deal with Lincoln's handling of slavery in more detail later on, but Lincoln felt he had to quash this emancipation order to keep Missouri and Kentucky in the Union. Those were both slave states, and Lincoln was barely holding on to them. Now let's deal with Kentucky. Kentucky was in a strategic location, essentially right in the middle of what was then the United States. Lincoln famously said, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Lincoln did two main things to keep Kentucky in the Union. One was rescinding Fremont's order, as I just outlined. The other was refusing to send troops into Kentucky until the Confederates did so first. In September 1861, Confederate troops marched into Kentucky and constructed a fort at Columbus, Kentucky along the Mississippi River. Federal forces then went into Kentucky. This forbearance by the Union troops had a great effect on public opinion. Many in Kentucky had hoped that the state could remain neutral. It was the Confederates who violated Kentucky neutrality. Lincoln could have placed Kentucky under martial law and used a heavy hand to hold it in the Union, but his policy of dealing delicately with Kentucky proved to be the wise course. Kentucky never seceded. By the way, Kentucky is where Abraham Lincoln was born. Yes, the great emancipator was born in a slave state. But as a child, his family moved to Indiana, and then as an adult, Lincoln moved to Illinois, where he spent most of his life. That's why Illinois has that cool state nickname, Land of Lincoln. Now let's look at Maryland. Geographically, Maryland was critical because it almost surrounds Washington, D.C. Okay, time for a little diversion into the history of America's capital city. Washington, D.C. was founded on July 16, 1790. What makes it a unique city is that it was completely planned. Most cities just grow organically, starting from a small settlement and they keep expanding. The location and the layout of Washington were both planned. George Washington selected the actual location for the new city to be the permanent capital of the U.S. Washington chose the locale where the Anacostia River flows into the Potomac River. The federal district would be a square of 10 miles on each side. That would be 16 kilometers for you metric fans. The land was given from Maryland and Virginia and the federal district would not be part of any state. Anybody who's looked at a map of Washington knows that the District of Columbia is not a square. It has three straight sides with Maryland surrounding it and the Potomac River as its fourth border with Virginia on the other side of the river. This is because in 1847, the portion of the District of Columbia on the southwest side of the Potomac River was given back to the state of Virginia. That didn't seem important at the time, but returning that part of Washington, D.C. on the southwest side of the Potomac back to the state of Virginia was significant during the Civil War. That's because Virginia was part of the Confederacy and therefore enemy territory. It was easier to defend the District of Columbia when all of it was on the other side of the Potomac River. There were no longer any land borders with the state of Virginia. This brings us to the problem involving Maryland. Virginia may have been just across the Potomac River from the federal capital, but the state of Maryland had land borders on three sides 
of Washington, D.C. If Maryland seceded and joined the Confederacy, Washington, D.C. would have been completely untenable. In the midst of a civil war, the federal government could not have its capital surrounded on all sides by enemy territory. If Maryland seceded from the Union, Lincoln would have been forced to move the seat of government out of Washington, D.C. That could have been a disaster for two reasons. Number one, it would have a bad effect on the morale of the Union military and the public throughout the free states. As I discussed earlier, one of Lincoln's objectives was to keep up public support for the war. Number two, losing one's capital to the enemy is often seen as an indicator of defeat. Might the British and French exploit such a situation and recognize the Confederacy as an independent nation? Knowing all of this, Lincoln took extraordinary measures to keep Maryland in the Union. Although a slave state, the people of Maryland had divided loyalties. Some were pro-Union and others wanted to join the Confederacy. Since he knew he absolutely could not let Maryland secede and join the Confederacy, Lincoln took several drastic steps. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. If you're not familiar with that term, it's a Latin term which roughly translates as deliver the body. It's an essential protection in a free society. The writ of habeas corpus means that if a person is arrested or detained, a judge can order the law enforcement officials who have the prisoner to come to court with the prisoner so that the court can determine whether or not that person is lawfully incarcerated. As a brilliant lawyer, Lincoln knew that he needed a legal basis to suspend habeas corpus. He cited Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution, which reads in pertinent part, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Clearly what was going on was a rebellion. On April 27, 1861, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus for the area between Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. If you look at a map, that encompasses the critical parts of Maryland. This allowed federal authorities, including Union troops, to arrest people in Maryland and hold them without trial. Mayor Brown of Baltimore was one of the people arrested and kept in Fort McHenry in Baltimore. In case that place sounds familiar, yes, Francis Scott Key looked at the enormous American flag during the bombardment of Fort McHenry in the War of 1812, which inspired him to write our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. The biggest controversy regarding the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus occurred when federal troops arrested John Merriman for treason on May 25, 1861. Merriman was a Maryland state legislator. Federal soldiers arrested him and confined him at Fort McHenry. The Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Roger Tawney, ruled that Lincoln did not have the authority to suspend the writ of habeas corpus because only Congress could do so. The case got in front of Justice Tawney because in the 1800s, Supreme Court justices also served as federal circuit court judges, and Tawney was the circuit court judge for Maryland. What did Lincoln do? He simply ignored Tawney's order. This was hardball politics, but it shows the lengths Lincoln would go to to hold on to Maryland. By the way, if the name Roger Tawney rings a bell, it's because as Chief Justice, he was the author of the worst decision in the history of American jurisprudence, 
Dred Scott versus Sanford. That was the 1857 Supreme Court case that ruled, among other horrible things, that African Americans, whether enslaved or free, were not citizens of the United States and therefore had no rights. At the end of April 1861, the State Assembly of Maryland met in the city of Frederick instead of the state capital in Annapolis. That was because Annapolis was filled with Union troops. Apparently, the state legislature got the point that their state was partially occupied by federal soldiers and that many more were on their way. The state legislature did not vote to secede and join the Confederacy. In September 1861, there was a call for the Maryland legislature to reconvene to possibly consider a vote of secession. Lincoln was not going to let that happen. On September 17, 1861, Union General Nathaniel Banks reported that all members of the Maryland legislature assembled at Frederick City on the 17th instant, known or suspected to be disloyal, in their relations to the government have been arrested. Maryland never seceded from the Union. What about West Virginia? Before the Civil War, there was no West Virginia. There was only one state of Virginia. Before the Civil War, Virginia was easily the largest state east of the Mississippi by land area. But Virginia got divided as a result of the Civil War. When Virginia seceded from the Union on April 17, 1861, a large segment of the populace in the northwestern part of the state did not want to join the Confederacy. People from the northwestern counties of Virginia eventually applied to become a separate state. With Republican majorities in both houses of Congress, the Senate and House of Representatives both approved a bill by late 1862 to admit West Virginia as a separate state. This presented Lincoln with a dilemma. Here he was fighting a war arguing that a minority could not secede and form a new government like the Confederacy was trying to do. And wasn't that exactly what these people from the northwestern counties of Virginia were asking Lincoln to do? Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution reads in pertinent part, New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any other state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. Some of his closest advisors told Lincoln that he should veto the proposed law because it was unconstitutional. Lincoln decided to be practical. Lincoln signed the bill and West Virginia became a state. We have Lincoln's thoughts on this subject because of a memorandum he issued at the time he signed the bill. Number one, Lincoln argued that a body claiming to be the true legislature of Virginia gave its consent. By this, he meant the people in West Virginia. What Lincoln was arguing was that the people in Richmond were in rebellion and were not the legitimate legislature representing the people of Virginia. Number two, Lincoln argued that this would be expedient to restore the Union. He states, Again, the admission of the new state turns that much slave soil to free and thus is a certain and irrevocable encroachment upon the cause of rebellion. And number three, Lincoln's third argument is that even if the creation of West Virginia as a state is essentially secession from the state of Virginia, it's okay because 
Well, if we call it by that name, there is still difference enough between secession against the Constitution and secession in favor of the Constitution. What Lincoln did with West Virginia, as well as Maryland, was to find constitutional arguments to justify what he felt were military necessities to end the rebellion and restore the United States. Now let's talk about the way Lincoln handled the abolition of slavery. I do not believe that anybody could have handled this volatile subject better than Lincoln did. At the beginning of the war, there were plenty of people screaming for Lincoln to immediately put an end to slavery. But he had to tread carefully in this area. As I outlined earlier, in 1861, Lincoln was doing all he could to keep Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri from seceding. Any moves against slavery at that time might have pushed those states into the Confederacy, making it much harder and perhaps impossible for the Union to win the war. As I stated earlier, what would be the point of a righteous and aggressive attack on slavery if the Union lost the war? If the Confederacy won its independence, slavery would continue in a new enormous country and would likely expand into additional territories. Also, in 1861, Lincoln was trying to keep as many Northern Democrats in support of the war effort. And lastly, in 1861, Lincoln did not believe that the majority of the population throughout the Union states would support a war with a primary goal of ending slavery as compared to restoration of the Union. It's terrible to admit, but before the war, abolitionists were minorities throughout the free states. But by the summer of 1862, a little over a year into the war, Lincoln changed the war policy of the United States. Restoring the Union was still the ultimate goal, but the abolition of slavery had now also become an absolute objective in this war. There is a big debate about why Lincoln did this. Some argue that by the summer of 1862, Lincoln had changed and become an abolitionist. If that's true, I think this says something good about him, it's good for people to change and admit they were wrong. The second position that some argue is that Lincoln was just being a cynical politician and issued the Emancipation Proclamation to keep Britain and France out of the war. And the third position is that Lincoln wanted to attack slavery all along, but could not do so before the summer of 1862. I fall into that third group. Lincoln hated slavery. As a young man, he had gone to New Orleans and had seen all the horrors of human bondage. The people who claim that Lincoln was just being cynical when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation point out various things Lincoln previously said when he was running for president in 1860. And these people love to point out this part of his first inaugural address on March 4, 1861, when he said, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. My reply is that he was still trying to keep the country together. As I have said several times on this episode, allowing the Confederacy to become a separate country would perpetuate and extend slavery. So first and foremost, Lincoln had to restore the United States. Here are my arguments against the people who do not think that Lincoln was sincere in his desire to end slavery throughout North America once and for all. Number one, Lincoln moved against slavery when he could actually accomplish it. By the summer of 1862, the border states of Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri were secure. 
Lincoln no longer had to worry about those states seceding and joining the Confederacy. Also, by that time, Lincoln had already won over all of the Northern Democrats he was ever going to get to support the war. Now was the time to actually bring about the end of slavery. Good intentions to eliminate the greatest sin of America were one thing, but achieving the goal was something else. Lincoln acted when he could genuinely put an end to the abomination of slavery in America. Number two, Lincoln never retreated from the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation was first issued on September 22, 1862, and then made official on January 1, 1863. In the summer of 1864, when Lincoln was running for re-election, most people believed that he would lose in November of that year. People were sick and tired of the hundreds of thousands of deaths, and they wanted peace. And it seemed that possibly Lincoln was preventing peace by insisting on the abolition of slavery. To combat this possibility of losing the presidential election, many people were telling Lincoln that he should issue a statement that the abolition of slavery was not a condition for restoration of the Union. In other words, tell the Southerners that they could rejoin the Union and keep slavery. Lincoln refused. This was stated publicly by Lincoln in writing. Horace Greeley was the publisher of the very influential New York Tribune newspaper. If that name sounds familiar, he's the man who famously said, Go West, young man. Greeley claimed in the summer of 1864 that some Southerners had approached him and claimed that they had authority to negotiate an end to the Civil War. Greeley asked Lincoln to state upon what terms Lincoln would make peace. Lincoln issued the following written statement. Executive Mansion, Washington, July 18, 1864. To whom it may concern, any proposition which embraces the restoration of peace, the integrity of the whole Union, and the abandonment of slavery, and which comes by and with an authority that can control the armies now at war against the United States, will be received and considered by the executive government of the United States, and will be met by liberal terms on other substantial and collateral points, and the bearer or bearers thereof shall have safe conduct both ways. Abraham Lincoln. The point is that Lincoln was stating publicly that he would not end the war without the abolition of slavery. And he stuck to this position, even though it seemed like it would cost him the election in November 1864. Lincoln accomplished abolition in a few steps. First, he needed a legal basis to do so. As president, he did not have the legal authority to end slavery. It's a horrible skeleton in the closet of American history, but it's true that the original U.S. Constitution protected slavery. They never used the term slave or slavery, but they used nice euphemisms like a person held to service or labor. Four different parts of the Constitution deal with slavery. Article 1, Section 2 has the infamous three-fifths clause when counting population of states for representation in the House of Representatives, enslaved people were counted as three-fifths of a person. Article 1, Section 8 sets forth the specific powers of Congress, including calling forth the militia to suppress insurrections. Was that clause intended specifically for slave insurrections? People still argue about that point. 
Article 1, Section 9 protected the slave trade until 1808. And Article 4, Section 2 dealt with fugitive slaves. Again, the words slave or slavery are never used in the Constitution. So what was Lincoln's authority for the Emancipation Proclamation? Lincoln claimed he had authority under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which states that the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. As Commander-in-Chief, Lincoln ruled that abolition was a military necessity as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion. The Emancipation Proclamation only freed the slaves in the states that were in rebellion. This was because the only authority that Lincoln confined in the Constitution was his role as commander-in-chief to do things that were military necessities. He did not have the authority to free the slaves in the border states which remained in the Union, namely Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. Some of Lincoln's detractors say that he only issued the Emancipation Proclamation as a way to win the war. These people misunderstand his claim of a military necessity. Lincoln very much wanted to end slavery, but he had to have some constitutional authority to do so. As I just outlined, he found that authority in his role as commander-in-chief. Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862, and stated that it would take effect on January 1, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation only had authority as a wartime measure, but Lincoln understood that once the Confederacy had been defeated, slavery would be dead even if the Emancipation Proclamation no longer had a constitutional basis. But Lincoln also wanted to avoid any confusion in the future and wanted to absolutely kill slavery once and for all. That's why he pushed so hard for the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. The 13th Amendment categorically ended slavery throughout the United States. Fortunately for the United States and the world, Lincoln was president during this crucial time. He won the war, saved the United States, and was instrumental in ending slavery throughout North America. That's it for today. Reviews greatly help. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it's easy to do a review. Scroll down the History Analyze show page, select a rating, hopefully five stars, and then tap Write a Review. If you're listening on Spotify or any other podcasts which allow ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you'll find links to fun items for history geeks. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.